Fresh, and then New Song, and now Harbor. And uh, God has just given Gabe a, a gift of just articulating, uh, articulating uh, encouragement in, in ways that uh, just just a formal speech can't do. And so uh, he, uh, this is grateful, just so grateful for it. He crafted a, this is a poem to just capture our season as a church and then our entering into a new one. So I'm going to invite Gabe up and he's going to share a poem with us. Okay. First of all, my boy Andrew loved it. Second of all, uh, love y'all. I love you guys. Um, in the book of Revelation, uh, dang, I'm really, really nervous. <laughs> I always get nervous. There's a, in the book of Revelation, um, Jesus speaks to a number of churches in the form, like he's writing letters to them. And so if he was to write a letter to us, I believe it might be something like this. To the church of New Song, I know your deeds. I know for the past three years, you have fought to believe in my name. I know that you have not given up meeting together to read and eat and pray. I know that some of you are serving diligently and that your leaders strive to shepherd you in my ways. I know your presence, how it feels like a chapter is closing and it can be kind of scary if you are not the author. I remember the same look on the face of Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Elijah, Habakkuk, and all the others when confronted with the fact that the righteous live by faith. The Church of New Song, I know your past. See the strain on some of your smiles like a band-aid that can't quite cover the whole wound. See you try to drag your spirit to journey groups and covenant dinners, only it feels like you are dragging an anchor, so you have to cosmetic curl another one on. My love, your past is never how I have seen you, and though I have grieved with you, I have called you to rise, pick up your mat, and walk. And yes, I see your sin. See, in the midst of you are those who worship with right theology but wrong response. In the midst of you are some of those who are less like Joshua and Caleb in the promised land and more like the ten other spies. I know how some of you are building bigger barns of wealth, not realizing the world is building a bigger home in your heart. How some of you still medicate with shots of bitterness and distrust, how some of you are still so scared of being deceived, you do not realize you are being deceived. Who told you you are naked? Did I not clothe you? Who told you you were alone? Have I not loved you before you became to be? Who, since when did your joy have a lid? Since when did you forget the one who fills you within? How long will you let apathy creep outside your door, trying to steal what only I can give? I know your shame. I carried it on the cross. I know your doubts. They do not disrupt my sovereignty. And I know your scars. 
I too wear scars. You gave these to me, and I let mine cover yours. To the church of New Song, I know your future. One where there is no new song, and no harbor nu'uanu. There is no other name except the one who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. No other church except the one that is called mine. And on that day, I will wipe every tear from your eye, and you will step, step right into eternal life. On that day, it will be like every day is a chapter that does not end, and it's better than the last as my boy C.S. Lewis said. Until then, endure in me. Just, just abide in me. Pray and call upon me. Put on your robe and ring from me. Rejoice in me always. And again, I say rejoice. Because I know you. No matter what name. I, I know you. Amen. Now, thank you so much, Katie, for sharing. Well, with that, let's, let's go ahead and pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gracious work uh, in our individual lives, in uh, the life of our church. Uh, you, uh, our church being here is just evidence of your goodness and faithfulness to your people. Lord, we think of the... Um, words of Apostle Paul that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. So we know that the work is not finished yet. We know that you are in the process even now of conforming us to be more and more like Jesus as individuals and as a church. And we're so hopeful, so confident that you will on the day of Jesus when he returns you will complete us. And so we long for and we look forward to that day. And, and until that day comes, Lord, we want to continue to look to you in faith. Uh, through every chapter of our church history, we thank you for the years that you have um, brought us through uh, from our Genesis in 2007 up until now. And we're hopeful for uh, the future. And we thank you that you are already in the future. We pray that uh, as we now are brought into the, the Harbor family, Lord, that this would lead to greater uh, love and discipleship. It would lead to greater outreach. It would lead to greater glory for you as we join hands with uh, other brothers and sisters uh, throughout uh, this island. And so we, we, we praise you for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do in and through your people uh, to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, if you're thinking, wait, what, what's going on? So we are uh, next week, as Jay mentioned, uh, we're going to be Harbor Nuuwanu. And what that means is we're going to be meeting here. Uh, same location, same time. Uh, I'll be up here uh, giving the message, uh, but we'll be uh, uh, meeting here as Harbor New Iwana. We We've been just in such a great relationship with Harbor Church for, uh, gosh, for over three years now, where we've done 
informal partnerships with them, participated in different outreaches with them. And uh, we just as a church have spent the past year just praying about the possibility of being a part of the Harbor family opposed to being just an independent church. And so uh, we made that move last year uh, to, to seek uh, being brought into to the Harbor family. And so uh, that's going to happen uh, next week in February, the very first Sunday uh, in, in, in February. And so uh, I just want to thank you, like for those of you who have been along for the ride, uh, as your pastor, I want to thank you for... Uh, being willing to make changes. Change is hard. It's hard, right? And I, I just want to personally thank you for being willing to make changes and to walk alongside it and trusting uh, me, trusting our leadership uh, in seeking the Lord on behalf of the church. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for, um, for being willing to move and, and make that change. So uh, we're going we're gonna to just celebrate that, uh, celebrate uh, this new season next week, as Jade mentioned, as we have a catered lunch and just, as a church, celebrate our new uh, chapter in our church history uh, as uh, Harbor New Uwanu. So um, with that, we're going to transition into this morning's message. As, it's so appropriate as, as we look at fighting for the gospel. Fighting for the gospel. So uh, we spend a good amount of time in the Bible, in our services, because we believe the Bible is God's word given to us. And it can be understood. And so because of that, we have Bibles available on our back table and outside. So if you don't own a Bible, you can take it and uh, keep it, our gift from us uh, to you. Also, if you want to connect with the church, you have a question, uh, you want to reach out about a certain service opportunity, um, feel free. We have bulletins that, that we passed out uh, where you can put your email, your name, and then you can give it to Eric uh, on your way out at the info table, and we'll connect. Uh, we'll, we'd love to connect with you. So uh, in this sermon series, uh, we launched last week in First Timothy uh, which is the fight? Uh, we uh, are are using a supplement, a book, um, to supplement this sermon series, and so we launched it last week. And uh, could we have the graphic, Micah, on the screen uh, of of uh, from the book? And I wanted to just quickly explain uh, what. Uh, re-explain what this is. So, um, as I mentioned, we entered a new sermon series called The Fight in First Timothy, Fighting the Good Fight. This idea that we, as, as followers of Jesus, are in a fight, not a physical war, but one where we are um, fighting for um, loving God, loving our neighbor as ourselves, uh, fighting against selfishness by the power of God. And so we've incorporated the book, The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction into our sermon series uh, on entering uh, the fight. And this book helps us in loving God and uh, loving our neighbor as ourselves. So a little backstory, I shared it last week. So the author is Justin Early. This book won Christianity Today's um, 2020 uh, discipleship Award. So it's just a pretty well-known book in the Christian community. So Justin uh, was a missionary in China, and then he moved back to the U.S., to Virginia, uh, to practice um, law as a lawyer from a top firm in Virginia. We have this graphic on the back table if you didn't get one from last week. You can feel free to pick it up 
uh, too. And so he moved back as a Christian. He moved back with his family from China to the U.S. Uh, but something went wrong. He started experiencing panic attacks, heavy, heavy bouts of anxiety. And so one night he couldn't sleep. He was freaking out. He went to the emergency room and the doctor basically told him, what you're experiencing is actually kind of common. Uh, panic attacks, anxiety attacks, uh, and uh, he was like, whoa, what's going on? I was a missionary in China. Things are great. And I moved back to the U.S. And now I, I'm having struggles with these, these, these anxieties, these panic attacks, uh, having trouble sleeping. So he, he tried sleeping pills. He tried to take sleeping pills in order to get him to sleep. But the problem was the side effects that came with the sleeping pills. He started experiencing mood swings. Uh, he would start crying at random uh, and even getting suicidal thoughts. So then he thought, you know what, I'll try drinking alcohol to help me to sleep. So he went that route. But what he realized was he started developing an unhealthy habit of drinking. So he was just confused. Like, I'm a Christian. I'm a professed follower of Jesus. But I'm experiencing uh, these heavy, heavy bouts of anxiety, fear, and panic. And so one night he had a, had a meal with some friends and just started thinking together through the habits that influenced his life. So um, habits are the things that we, that we do without, without uh, intentional thought because we've done it so many times throughout our, 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 our lives. So for example, uh, we may have uh, driven home from work and we realized, oh, I don't even know, remember intentionally thinking about the turns that I made. You ever did that where you realize, how did I get home? But it's because it's a habit already. It's something we've already built into our system. So Duke University came out with a survey that about 40% research that 40% of what we do is based upon our habits, things that we're not intentionally thinking about. And so what this book... And what Justin is, 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 is sharing is that the habits that formed his life weren't habits out of scripture or a love for God, but it was habits based upon uh, our culture. The American culture was forming his habits without him even realizing it. Whether it be social media, the use of technology and phones, uh, our, our, our worship of productivity as Americans, these values were influencing uh, his life. And so he wrote a book uh, called The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction, where he basically implemented these simple, simple habits, easy, small habits uh, that would foster a greater love for God and for our neighbor. And so last week we invited the church. Uh, one of those habits was, um, daily habit was kneeling three times a day in prayer. And so uh, we invited the church last week that each day just kneel uh, uh, three times, morning, midday, and evening. And th that reminds us as we kneel that Jesus is our king. We're not our king or queen. That God created us for communion with him, and, and prayer is a way that we enjoy him. Prayer is also a way that we depend on him. And so when we pray throughout the day, it's a reminder that we need God every moment of our lives. And so we encourage the church last week to, to do that. This week, we're going to uh, encourage the church to join us, invite the church to join us. Uh, second daily habit is to have one meal 
with others daily. Whether it be breakfast, whether it be lunch, whether it be dinner, being intentional about a meal with other people. Now, we might think a meal, okay, that's the, what? How is that a, a habit that can foster a greater love for God and for our neighbor? Well, eating actually reminds us of a, of a number of good truths. Um, eating a meal, right, uh, is uh, something in our society, maybe for some people, that it's just kind of like filling up gas at, 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 uh, at 7-Eleven. Right, there are some people, right, in our American culture, we value productivity. And what that means is if eating a meal gets in the way of being productive, we're going to think of ways to work while we eat. You ever done that? I've done that before. It's common for me to be in front of a computer to working and eating because I think I'm being more productive because I'm using that time of eating while getting work done. For some people, if, if you could take a pill instead of eating, they would do it because it... It's faster, and that way you can be more productive. Uh, it's common, right, to take meals alone so that you can work and be productive. And, and there are appropriate times where that's a good thing, right? But what we can forget is God did not create eating to be something like a, like a, like a drive-through filling up your gas. We don't scarf down food like gasoline. Eating was to remind us of a number of good things. First, it reminds us of our dependence on God. We are created in God's image. But one way that we're different from God is God does not need anything to survive. He's self-existent. But we need food in order to survive. Every time we eat a meal, we can remember that we are dependent on God, who does not need to depend on anyone. Eating also reminds us that we depend on other people. The food that we ate was prepared by somebody else, was grown by somebody else. And so as we eat, it's a reminder that, wow, God created us to be dependent upon other people in our lives. Not only that, we were created to be in community. God himself is a community God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He created us to be in relationship with one another. And one of the most intimate ways to share that, that community, to reflect who God is, is through food. I don't know about you, but there's just something about, uh, there's a difference between having a meeting with someone and sharing a meal with that person. Having a, a good plate lunch in front of you, eating at a restaurant, or just eating a home-cooked meal with family members or friends. It just opens up conversations, and it opens up hearts. There's something about eating with people that, that fosters deeper, more intimate conversations. We were created to have deep, meaningful relationships with other people, and we can foster that, a love for others through eating with one another. So that can look like uh, sharing a meal with family if that's centered around breakfast, lunch, or dinner. That can look like sharing a meal with coworkers. So instead of taking our lunch and going into our office by ourselves and closing the door, it could be staying in the workroom and just eating meal or inviting uh, a, a coworker out to lunch. It could be after work, going out with coworkers and sharing a meal uh, with them after 
work. It could look like going over to a friend's house or to a, if, if we don't live with our parents or other family members, going over to their place or inviting them over to share a meal. There's just different ways that we can do that. But, but the point is that we are created for community. And oftentimes in our culture of productivity and technology, it, it can be really easy to just go into our cave and, and really deprive ourselves of the gift of relationships. So my, I want to invite us uh, to uh, one, once a day for this week to think about ways that we can have a meal with somebody, someone else. So this is not a laundry list to do where it's like, all right, I got to do this to be right with God. No, we believe we're right with God through faith in Christ. But this is just ways that we can foster and fuel a greater love for God and for others. And so at the end of this sermon series, whatever works for you, I would just encourage you to keep doing it. And maybe some things don't. And so don't feel like, oh, I'm sinning if I don't. No, it's, it's whatever is helping fuel a love for God and for, for others. All right. As we grow in fighting this good fight, loving God and loving Others. So this morning we're going to look at in First Timothy three, First uh, Timothy one verse three through eleven, what it looks like to fight for the gospel, to fight for the gospel. So I'm going to transition now into that passage. So, you know, we've all, as you hear me talk about, you know, the culture and warning about how our culture can influence our habits and our habits influence our hearts. Um, we're given a lot of warnings, right, as we grow up through life. And uh, maybe for some of us kids in here, your parents warn you not to do drugs, <laughs> right? Uh, friends warn us against dating. Remember in the past, a particular guy or girl that they knew was not good. Um, we had teachers who warned us to do our work, not that we're going to fail that class. Um, for me, one particular warning that stands out when I was growing up was from my parents, and it was, had to do with going to the beach. And so when I would go to the beach with my friends in high school, they would always warn me about the currents in our oceans. So we would go, my friends and I would go, we, I lived on the east side, so we'd go to Bellows, Sherwoods, and if we were really brave, Sandy Beach. Uh, and, and the currents at times would be really strong. So my parents were afraid. They were afraid because I'm not a strong swimmer that I would be taken out to sea. Uh, by the currents. And I took their warning seriously. Uh, there'd be times I'd be in the water, uh, and a lot of us experience that, right, if you've been to our beaches, where you're in one spot, and you put, you know, your, your, your blanket and everything, your towel and everything on the beach, and then 10 minutes later, you look at the, the shoreline, and you've drifted like, like 30, 40, 50 feet from your original place. And we, we see that, and we're like, whoa, how did that happen? I wasn't even intentionally trying to drift, but just through being in the water, I drifted away. And so um, I grew up aware of that, aware of the drifting that can happen in, in the ocean because that could lead for me to needing to be rescued. Uh, it could lead to me drowning because I wasn't a very good swimmer. Right, so we, we have various warnings that people give us in our lives. And, and, and there's a even more serious warning that the Bible gives us. And that is the warning of drifting, not in a beach or in water, in the ocean, but drifting from the gospel, drifting from the good news of Jesus. What is the good news of Jesus, right? 
that God has made a way to reconcile sinful, rebellious humans to himself. And that way is through Jesus, his son, through his life, death, resurrection, and through and all who put their faith in him are brought into his family. One day he's gonna, Jesus is going to return and make all things right. right. That is the good news of Jesus. It's what God has done for us. And the warning that Paul is giving to Timothy and to the church is it's so easy to drift from the gospel. And the effects of it will be devastating on our lives personally and our lives as a church. Maybe for some of us this morning we think, I don't even know what the good news of the gospel is. Others of us, we think, I'm not drifting from the gospel. And I think that's what this church in Ephesus that Paul is writing to probably thought, is they're not drifting from the gospel. Maybe others of us think, uh, we're not really sure if we're drifting from the gospel. How would we know? And so this morning, uh, we're going to explore just how one church who seemed spiritually healthy at one point of time uh, became, uh, their, their church was threatened in that they would soon lose uh, the gospel. And so um, we're going to look at how Paul is encouraging Timothy to fight the good fight, to fight, to preserve, and to treasure uh, the gospel. And so last week, again, we started that series on the fight, this battle between God and all who love and serve him, and Satan, who is a created being, and his followers. But unlike other religions, uh, Christianity teaches that this battle, this spiritual battle that's, that's, that's being fought, it's not a 50-50 battle where like we don't know who's going to win. Uh, we believe that God, the Bible teaches God is in complete authority even over his enemies. And what that means is God uses even Satan and his enemies to accomplish his plans. Satan is a tool in the hand of God. Paul is encouraging Timothy and the church to join him in this good fight, in the fight to preserve and to treasure the gospel. Timothy is a young pastor in the church of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Uh, Last week, we talked about how Timothy had physical ailments, so much so that Paul encouraged him to drink some wine to help with his physical ailments. Uh, Timothy also, his personality, he wasn't that type A entrepreneurial uh, guy, charismatic guy. Uh, that just is so easily can gather, gather a following. He didn't seem like that. He seemed to more be an introverted, probably shy person that was called to pastor. We kind of get that because in, in, in Timothy, Paul encourages Timothy, hey, God didn't give you a spirit of timidity or fear, but one of power and self-control and a sound mind. So Timothy needed encouragement. Uh, he wasn't, didn't seem like someone that's like, ah, we're going to charge this hill and we're going to do it. He seemed the kind of guy that was kind of laid back. And so he needed to be encouraged to stick it out. This was tough. He was this young pastor in a church that needed, needed reform, needed change. And Paul was telling Timothy, don't leave, stay. Because Timothy must have been tempted to leave. Uh, he must, must have been tempted to look for an easier place, uh, maybe to pastor. And so um, he's writing to, Paul is writing to Timothy, encouraging him to persevere. And so what was going on in this church? Let's get a little background. So Paul was at the church in Ephesus, uh, and he was encouraging them, and he, and he gave them this warning in Acts 20, verse 28 to 32. Here's what Paul said to this church that, that he's writing to. 
He says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has given you over to He's talking to the elders, the pastors. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Okay, right, so Paul is here in Ephesus, this church that, that he's writing to, uh, Timothy's the pastor of, and he's basically saying, okay, I'm going to leave, and there are going to be people in your own church who are going to be, who are wolves, meaning they're, they're going to prey on the flock, and they're going to try to draw people away from the gospel, away from the church. Okay, uh, now, imagine that, imagine if, if, if Paul, an apostle, came to us and basically said, hey, like, when I leave, people in your church are going to rise up and they're going to try to distort the gospel. Wouldn't we be like, antennas up, like, all right. Uh, it'd be hard not to be suspicious of people, right, in that, in that case. Paul said this about four years before writing his letter. Is that crazy? You'd think this church would be aware that, all right, the apostle Paul who wrote much of the New Testament, is telling us that they're going to become wolves and they're not going to come from the outside. They're going to be from the inside of the church. And if you read 1 Timothy, it's possibly that it's some of their pastors because Paul's going to talk to Timothy about rebuking elders in the church. So possibly their leadership, um, leaders in their church. You would think the church would be like alert, like, all right, we're going to be watchful. But evidently not because Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, encouraging him to stick it out and, and bring change uh, to this church. And so Paul is warning them with tears that this is going to happen. This church, who the apostle Paul was a part of, uh, four years later, about four years later, was in danger of losing the gospel. And so what does that mean for us? Is that we shouldn't be prideful to think, nah, we won't forget the gospel. We won't treasure the gospel. We won't make the gospel the emphasis of our lives in our church. Uh, but look at this church, four years, and they were in danger of losing, in danger of drifting off in that strong current. So what was it that, that, that was causing this? Well, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. It says this, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So what was going on in this church that was threatening the gospel is the church was focusing on emphasizing something other than the gospel. Here it's myths and endless genealogies, extra biblical Bible books uh, from their time that they gravitated towards and started getting consumed with. Um, for us in our day, you know, in the early 2000s, some of us might remember the book, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, right? It's a novel. And basically in that book, he entertains the thought that Jesus had a wife, Mary Magdalene, and had children together. And that the books of the Bible are not all the books of the Bible, that the church intentionally left out books that were supposed to be in the Bible. And so there's this whole thing on, oh, Jesus was married. 
Jesus and, 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 and Mary Magdalene. And they're taking it from these extra biblical sources that were written after the New Testament letters, from these Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, which was not written by Thomas. But because people don't do their research, they read a book like Dan Brown and say, oh, Jesus had a wife. Jesus had kids. Doesn't the Bible say that? No, the Bible doesn't say that. Uh, this, this false gospel that is dated well after uh, uh, the disciple uh, uh, Thomas lived, well after the New Testament books is now being promoted as the Bible. And so people get caught up in, in, in these, 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 these types of things and lose sight of the gospel. So maybe most of us are like, you don't even know that book, the Da Vinci Code, right? Or maybe you heard of it, but you have no idea. So you're like, ah, you know, like, I, I know that that's not, that's not purporting true things. But what could a church get distracted from? Well, maybe not things like myths and speculations, but other things that are not the gospel, that are important, that each individual, it's good to have uh, a, a personal opinion on, but aren't, isn't the gospel, right? Churches can get caught up in the debate on Calvinism and Arminianism, right? Whether you're a Calvinist or Arminian. Free will, humans are free to choose, or the sovereignty of God. Church, people can get consumed about that and make that the emphasis. Uh, people get, can, can get consumed with complementarianism, Right, that men have certain and women have distinct roles in the church and in the home, or egalitarianism, that there are no distinct roles in the church and in the home. And churches can get consumed with that. Churches get, can, can get consumed with uh, uh, spiritual gifts, right? Cessationism, that the, the, that the, the, the gifts of, of healings and, and, and tongues, that they have ceased after the age of the apostles, or continuation, uh, continuationism, continuation. That the gifts continue to this very day. And churches get split and divided over and focus on these things. So much so that the gospel is lost. Because, not because it's not believed in, but it's assumed. It's assumed. And once the gospel is assumed, it's being threatened to be lost. To be lost. And so this church seemed to have got so caught up, or they, they got caught up with all these other things that the gospel was no longer the center of their church, was no longer the center of their message. So first, Paul is, is, is telling Timothy, right, to warn them not to devote themselves to these other things. Secondly, right, and so we can apply these things to our lives. We're, we're not Timothy. We're not a pastor in Ephesus, uh, pastoring a church uh, in the first century, but there are, there are these encouragements that Paul is giving Timothy that we can apply to our own, uh, our, to our own lives. So first thing, right, is, is to be aware of false teaching that detracts from the gospel. The second thing for us, and Paul tells Timothy, right, is, is when we do uh, uh, correct others, is that our motive would be out of love. Here's what Paul tells Timothy in verse 5. The aim of our charge, the motive, the purpose is love. That issues from a pure heart. We don't have ulterior motives. A good conscience, right? We're not doing the same thing that they're doing, that we're, we're correcting them on, right? That's good conscience. We're not doing it with selfish ulterior motives. And out of a sincere faith, we believe the gospel as we encourage people to 
focus and return to the gospel. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So Paul is encouraging Timothy, right, to help those who are drifting from the gospel. And the Bible gives different references that not only pastors, but but Christians are to help one another when we drift from the gospel. In Hebrews 3, uh, verse 12 to 14, uh, it says this, take care brothers, right? So this is Christians, lest, you be, lest uh, there be any of you in evil, uh, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort, encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What is that confidence? It's the confidence in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So we are to be uh, um, helping each other when we see each other drift. James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20 says this. My brothers, again, it's not leaders, it's Christians. If anyone among you wanders from the gospel, the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin, right? We are to care for one another and look out for another where if we begin uh, ourselves drifting or others drifting from the good news of Jesus to encourage them back to, um, to Christ. But we're to do it out of love. Out of love. We are to speak the truth in love. And so we have the tendency to, to overemphasize one over the other. For some of us, our personality, uh, we, we're good at sharing truth, but we're not being loving about it, right? So if someone has hanabara coming out of their nose, right? We'd say, oh, gross. There's boogers hanging out of your nose. That's truth, but that wasn't a very lo- loving way to say it, right? Others of us, it's not that, right? We, we, we tend to care about someone else, but not share with them truth, right? So we'll see someone having hanabara hanging out of their nose, and we don't want them to be offended or feel hurt, and so we'll just let them talk to us while there is boogers hanging out of that nose, right? Because, and a lot of times when you think about it, we, we won't share truth out of selfish, self-preservation reasons, right? We don't share it because they might not want to be friends with us anymore. That's a selfish motive. Uh, we might not share with them because we don't, we're afraid of their reaction. We, in other words, we fear them more than their benefit. Um, we won't share truth because we, um, we, we care so much about what they think about us. We don't want them to think about, we don't want them to think we're so judgmental if we share truth. And so we end up not doing it. And we, we miss, right, the opportunity to help someone in their need. Paul is encouraging Timothy to share the truth, but to share it out of love. Next, Paul's going to encourage Timothy and the church, right, to use the word of God wisely. Use the law wisely. Here's what he says. Now what we know, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Ah, so we can use the Bible, the law, unwisely. When we hear the word law, it's not like the the law of Hawaii. It's not the law of aerodynamics. It's not the Pythagorean theorem, okay? Uh, When when Paul is using the word law here, it's speaking of the law in the Old Testament, 
the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. Uh, and so, we, so when he's saying law, he's speaking of the Bible or the Old Testament uh, scriptures. We can use that unwisely, wrongfully, and I'll explain how we can do that. But let me read through the passage. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, uh, for the ungodly and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, uh, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, uh, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been uh, entrusted. Okay, so what is going on here, right? So Paul is just listing different ways that we break God's law. So it's important to know this is, um, this, this isn't an exhaustive list. These are just examples, God, and let's kind of circle back to the beginning. God created human beings in his image to know him and to enjoy him. Our first human beings rebelled against God, decided we're going to live autonomously from God. We're going to decide what right and wrong is. And so from that point, all of human history, every single human being, all of us have something called the sinful nature in which within our very nature, we want to live autonomously from God, right? Think about a little child that says, mine. That's basically them saying, I'm the king. I'm the queen of my own life. That's every human being. And that is proof and evidence that something is wrong. We are broken and we are, we are detached from alienated from our creator because we have within us this, this uh, nature to live autonomously as our own rulers. And so that's evident. So God gave us his law to show us that we are lawbreakers, that something is wrong, that we need, that we need help. So we shouldn't read this list and say, that's not me. No, Paul is, is, is listing uh, what, what is true of every human being throughout human history, except for Jesus, is that we are lawbreakers by nature. We are in rebellion against God by nature. Something is wrong. Our world is broken, and we as human beings are, are broken. So we should not read this list of things. I'm not part of it. One of the purposes of the law, because Paul just said, right, the law can be used wrongly. One of the purposes of the law was to point us to our need for a savior. The law was not used to beat people over the head. That wasn't the purpose of the law. Right? Uh, think about it like this. Right? Imagine if we were to get sick. We were to go to our doctor. And our doctor would have run some tests on the office and say, oh yeah, okay, I, I ran your tests. And yeah, so you have the coronavirus. I'll see you at our next annual visit. Imagine that, right? You just got diagnosed with, with, with the virus that, that everyone's freaking out over uh, that started in China. Doctor says, oh yeah, you got the coronavirus. See you later. We'd be like, wait, okay, wait, well, huh? <laughs> what do I do? Uh, what do I take? Uh, right, we'd be like, okay, the test, the test you took on me was meant to tell me what I'm supposed to do. Point me to the cure, the solution. So people use the Bible wrongly. We can use the Bible wrongly if we point out people's sin and stop there. If we say, all right, you're messed up. Here's, here's the Bible, what the Bible says. All right, see you later. That's using the law 
wrongly. The point of the law was to point us to Jesus to save us. Galatians 3, 24 to 26, here's what it says. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In, in, in Roman culture, uh, when, a, when a child was too young to gain the inheritance of the father, uh, the, 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 the child was given a guardian, a tutor, someone to be a nanny to them, to help raise them up. But once they were old enough, the guardian was not needed anymore because they came of age. So what Paul is saying here is that one of the purposes of the law was not to be our father or anything like that. The law was to lead us to Christ, was to lead us to um, the gospel, to point us to our Savior. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, Jesus has come. Uh, we are no longer under a guardian. We're not living under the law. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith in him. The goal, one of the goals of the law was to show us our need for Jesus, to point us to Jesus. To show us that it was Jesus who took upon himself our sins, who took the punishment that we deserved on the cross. And that's the good news uh, that, that Paul is, is talking to uh, the church in Galatia, who is also losing the gospel, was that the only way that we are made right with God is through faith in Jesus' death on the cross in our place, right? It's like a courtroom setting where if God were to list out, if we're in a courtroom setting, we're being prosecuted, and God were to list out every single way that we broke his laws, we'd all have a very, very long list then we'd be judged for it. We would get the consequences of breaking that law, right? Eternal, right? Punishment. Because we have sinned against an eternal God. And it's a just punishment. But what Jesus did was he basically took that record of our, our, our disobedience and he said, I'll take it as if I did it and punish me uh, for it. And so that's what the cross was. It was taking the punishment that we deserve for our crimes. And then not only that, Jesus lived a perfect life, a perfect record of living. You ever thought, why didn't Jesus just come to earth and then die on the cross right away? Why did he have to live 33-ish years? Part of it was in order to live a perfect life uh, of obedience, in order to give that perfect record to us through faith. So not only does Jesus take our punishment, the list of wrongs that we have done, but then through faith, Jesus gives us his perfect record of living. That's why when the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus' perfect record, and he says, you're not guilty, you are righteous. You're righteous. Isn't that amazing? And we'll think to ourselves, no, but I got a lot of issues still yet I'm working through. Yeah, but then when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our list of sins, he sees Christ's perfect record of living. That's the good news. It wasn't earned. Uh, it's not something that we have to work towards. It's received as a gift through faith in Jesus as our Savior and as our, and as our King. So Paul encourages Timothy to use the law rightly, to point people to Christ, and then to treasure it. Look at verse 11 in 1 Timothy 1.3. In accordance with the good news, that's the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. God entrusted Paul with the good news of Jesus, and Paul is entrusting the gospel to Timothy. 
and the church. My encouragement for us is that we would grow in treasuring the gospel, rehearsing the gospel to ourselves. We, we do that by coming together each Sunday. So one of the reasons why we gather together as a church is that, that reminder of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And that's a reminder of what he has done. Another way we do that is through taking communion. When we take communion as follows the Lord Jesus, we remember Jesus' body and blood that he gave for us. We grow in treasuring the good news as we sing about the good news as individuals and corporately as a church. We grow in treasuring the good news as we share it with our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. We grow in the good news and treasuring it when we pray to God and we thank him for the good news. So there's just so many different ways that we can grow in treasuring the gospel. And so I want us to, to do that before we sing uh, to God now. So we're going to just spend a moment in prayer. Maybe for some of us, we haven't treasured the gospel. Use this time to thank God for what Jesus has done. Maybe for some of us, we, we're still thinking about the gospel. We have not trusted Jesus uh, yet. And I would encourage you to pray to God uh, that he would give you the faith to trust in him. So others of us, it's, it's sharing the gospel. Praying for that person that that God is leading you to share the gospel with. But let's just take a moment now and pray to God. Father, we thank you that you have made a way uh, for us to be reconciled to you and adopted into your family. And let's do Jesus. And Lord, we want to treasure Jesus, enjoy Jesus, share Jesus with others. We pray that it would happen even as we have uh, share meals with friends or family or co-workers this week. Pray we would treasure the gospel uh, when we eat with one another, that even as Christians sharing a meal, we are rehearsing uh, what will come when we will sit at the wedding supper of the Lamb, Jesus, and his people. On that day when you will create a new heaven and a new earth, we rehearse that each time we share a meal together. It's time we take communion. So grow us, Lord, in just a, a treasuring of your good news. And we would, as a church, guard it, protect it, hold it out. 
others to, to hear. And we pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.